We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central Studios, where they make silence simple. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if owning a silencer is legal in your state, and then work with their experts to find the perfect suppressor for your needs. They handle all the paperwork and ship to your front door. Silencercentral.com. It's that time of season where most of us are finalizing plans for the holidays. As a much younger man, I played in the college marching band. My brother was the manager for a Division I basketball team, and my middle brother was serving in the United States Air Force at the time. Bowl games, holiday tournaments, and duty kept us apart during several holidays. Then my parents went to Czechoslovakia to teach English. Several more separations. One of the things I've come to appreciate from that experience is the importance of a strong family bond that's reflected when no matter how far apart you are, you still feel close together. For me, this time of year is also time to reflect on something that comes up every year and is central to the reason we do this radio broadcast. The reason that most of us are able to spend the holidays safely, peacefully, in the warmth and comfort of friends' family is because there are others, men and women, who have volunteered to be away from their families, military and first responders both. It's just one example of the sacrifices they make on our behalf. Joining us today to share an insider's perspective is a gentleman who spent more than two decades serving our nation in the United States Air Force, the majority of it with units in the Air Force that have one of the highest deployment tempos in the entire service, the Pararescue Forces. He is currently the commander of the 563rd Rescue Group based out of Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. The 563rd consists of an HC-130J Rescue Squadron, two HH-60G Rescue Squadrons, three Garden Angel Rescue Squadrons, and an Operations Support Squadron. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Colonel Jose Cabrera. Thanks, man. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come here today and uh, talk a little bit about what we do for a living and talk about the holidays. And I got all those numbers right, 130J, HH, whatever, yeah? Yeah, I know it's tough. There's a lot of numbers <laughs> uh, to throw in there, but you got them right. Uh, Jose, I, I was actually with you and some of your airmen at a, an event this holiday season. It, just, it struck me, I always think about that during the holidays, how nice most of us have it. And unfortunately... It never crosses a lot of the civilian families' minds that you and your your comrades and folks from the other services are like as I mentioned, even first responders, policemen, fire, are out there separated from their families while we're just having a grand old time with ours. And so I I'm very grateful that you're willing to come on and to talk about that a little bit about you. So you were commissioned out of the ROTC, correct? Correct. Yeah. So I, I went to school at the University of Delaware and uh, did the ROTC program there in commission in 2000. Why the Air Force and why pararescue? So the Air Force, because I joined junior ROTC while I was in high school. They just started a program back at the Glasgow High School, which is where I went for my junior and senior year. And I got the opportunity to join and learn a little bit about the Air Force, and I decided that's what I wanted to do after college. Why rescue? Why pararescue? Had a little bit to do with my first two years in the Air Force. I originally came in as an air traffic controller, which I thought was going to be a great job, a way to do something different after my service something that I thought would be very enjoyable. But on 9-11, I was at the time at Rutgers University uh, just doing one year as a uh, what they call a gold bar recruiter. So my job was going out and finding high school young men and women that wanted to apply to be ROTC students in college. So while I was up there, you know, just across the Hudson from New York City, 9-11 happened, and I got to uh, participate on day two at Ground Zero. I got to see all the great work that our first responders did, our military did, 
And I kind of fell in love with the idea of helping people and being part of something that I thought was going to be very meaningful. So I found a way to get back into that sort of work while serving in the Air Force and and pararescue and and, and the rescue community seemed like the right call. So I cross-trained and I've been doing that for the past 21 years. We've talked about pararescue PJs, kind of the shortened title for for your community. You know, on the show, it's been a while. So if you don't mind, Colonel, let's kind of reacquaint people with what you all do. Your mission can be summed up in one phrase I see a lot on T-shirts and badges and banners in the hangar. Yep, that's correct. The motto of pararescuemen and all rescue airmen is these things I do that others may live. That motto goes back many, many decades. We've lived by that motto for all the major conflicts that we're all familiar with over the last 20 years and before Vietnam. And really, it's all about uh, putting yourself out there, if called upon, going through extreme risks to go save down airmen, injured soldiers and Marines behind enemy lines. Now, if I'm correct, the Air Force... PJ squadrons, you're the only ones, I think, in all of our branches. I mean, Coast Guard does rescue, too. But basically, if anybody gets in trouble, Marines, SEALs, whomever, they're sending in the PJs, generally. Generally speaking, yeah. So one of the unique things about the Air Force is that we have a dedicated rescue force. Uh, So we have HA-60s and the air crews that are part of those units, and we have AC-130s, which are fixed-wing aircraft that are also dedicated to rescue. We have the air crews, and then we have pararescuemen that, for the most part, ground-focused airmen, and they have a unique set of uh, skills. Some people say they're the most qualified rescue specialists in the world because they operate in any environment. Uh, They do that job in combat. They, They do it over water. They do it in humanitarian relief operations. They do it in disaster relief operations. So it's a very unique set of tools and training that these airmen have to go do that job. Now, this qualifies or falls under the the Air Force Special Operations umbrella, does it not? Correct, yeah. So pararescuemen are part of the the special warfare community, so there's another set of ground airmen that are part of that community, but they're the only ones that are uh, 100% dedicated to the rescue mission. There was a series on, on Discovery Channel, Surviving the Cut. Uh, you're probably too young to remember it, but you talked about SEALs and MARSOC and some other things, and that one of the segments featured pararescue, and it talked about just what a difficult qualification this was. And and very often people think about the SEALs and BUDS, but for pararescue, only something like nine out of every hundred actually make the cut. Yeah, so the the attrition rate is uh, somewhere around 80 to 85%, depending on, on the year. So it's very difficult to make it into the career field. And interesting you mentioned that show, Surviving the Cut, because that's one of the first things I watched about Pararescue, and, and it's how I kind of ended up falling in love with the job. As a matter of fact, uh, not such a great story, but uh, one of the sergeants that is featured in, in that episode on Pararescue, his name was Mike Maltz. A few years after that, when I tried out to go be a combat rescue officer and join the Pararescue teams, he was one of the instructors that was assessing me at Phase 2 Less than a year and a half after that, he died in Afghanistan, unfortunately. Oh, no. Okay. Again, I just, and I tell you, my wife loves you guys. You're, you're her favorite secret squirrels, if I can <laughs> use that phrase. And she's met a lot of them. But, I mean, jumping out of planes, scuba diving, Arctic warfare, and medical training, oh, by the way, among other things. So what, I mean, it sounds like you all have all the bases covered no matter where you need to be in the world. And that's kind of the entire point of, that diverse set of skills and training is that no matter where somebody finds themselves in need of a rescue, our pararescuemen are going to be able to get there and get them out. Uh, so whether it's um, you know on top of a mountain 
or pararescuemen or alpine rescue specialists. If it's uh, a crash site and we have, uh, unfortunately, human remains, because that does happen underwater, our pararescuemen uh, can go down and do search dives, and they can they can pull them out of, out of that body of water. If it happens that they get hung up on the side of a cliff or on top of a tree, they have the technical rescue skills and the rope skills to get them down. If they happen to go down somewhere where helicopters can't get to because it's too far, it's too high for helicopters, then they can jump in, right? So no matter where they go, they have the ability to get there, get them out, and then provide that life-saving medical uh, treatment along the way. And that's something else I want to emphasize when we talk about the sacrifices but also the support. Your pararescuemen also are very active in domestic situations. I mean, I think some of the more visible rescues I've seen were one was a, a, a freighter off the California coast where someone had a heart attack or, or during natural disasters. It's the PJs that are going in there and pulling a lot of those people out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so th- there is a diverse set of missions that, that our rescue airmen do, uh, whether it's humanitarian relief operations, disaster relief. You know, one of the things that I got to participate in early on was Hurricane Katrina and then the follow-on hurricane in that area, Rita, back-to-back major disasters. As you know, everybody knows uh, a, a lot of uh, folks in need out there, and our air crews, 60s, 130s, and our pararescue men spent uh, weeks and weeks uh, saving hundreds of lives. Colonel, hold that thought. I want to talk more about pararescue when we come back and also the holidays. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Garcia with Colonel Jose Cabrera. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Colonel Jose Cabrera, who is the commander of the 563rd Rescue Group, the PJs, one of my favorite military groups, and uh, probably because I get to interact with your, your community quite a bit here because you're, you're here in our, our flagship station hometown. We're talking a little bit about the, the role and the missions, and one thing I love about what you guys do is you get some of the coolest toys. I mean, you got the helicopters, you got the 130s, but then, I mean, I've seen like dune buggies on steroids out there, uh, some really pretty cool looking watercraft. And um, I guess my question is, is every pararescue crew member, well, not the pilots, I'm guessing, but the PJs themselves, are they all trained in all, I mean, can every PJ scuba, parachute, winter war for all the above, or do you have sort of specialists depending on what part of the world they're based in? So they all share the same set of skills. So we train all pararescue, and just like we train all of our air crews across the same set of skills. But they do specialize as they come along and they develop into NCOs and senior NCOs. We we end up with folks that really enjoy weapons, mm-hmm. and they become tackleberries. You know, they just know everything that there is to be known <laughs> about every single weapon system we own and they become the weapons instructors. So they're all commonly qualified on the same skill sets. That we do develop subject matter expertise as, as they go along. Now, are these then medics who are warriors or warriors who are medics? I like to think of them as rescue specialists, right? So they're not medics. They're all, we're all warriors, right? Every, right? every service member is a warrior. But in terms of what, how I would qualify a pararescue, I would say they're a rescue specialist, right? They're not a medic. They're not a mountaineer. They're not just a parachutist. They're a combination of all those unique skill sets 
brought together for one purpose, and that's what makes him the best rescue specialist in the world. So as a dumb civilian, to wrap my head around this, what would be the civilian equivalent of the training level of a, a typical PJ? Would it be paramedic, EMT? Correct, yeah. So for their initial qualifications, so in the first two years that they are going through their training pipeline, they actually go through a six-month paramedic course where they uh, become EMTPs, so they're nationally registered, just like their equivalent, their their counterparts on civilian uh, EMS services, and they also get a whole bunch of additional training to do paramedic skills in the field. They generally have a lot more leeway in uh, doing surgical procedures and using medicine uh, and treatments that would not typically be allowed in a civilian setting, but they have to because right. they, they got to do that in the middle of the jungle. They got to do that in the desert. They got to do that for days uh, without relying on getting to medical care or higher level of medical care, uh, sometimes, you know, it could be up to 72 hours. I'm guessing uh, my term, not necessarily yours, but you might agree, a, a relative legend in your community, William Pitsenbarger, almost 300 missions in Vietnam. And there's a movie released recently uh, called The Last Full Measure. He eventually was awarded the Medal of Honor for some of the things he did as a PJ. When you talk about film and media, the a lone survivor, the famous rescue of, of Marco Sotrell off that cliff face in, in Afghanistan. That was done by a, a reserve pararescue unit. And I, I've had several of those those crew members on the show, and they, they describe that the pucker factor there is, is relatively high in that situation. Are you able to share any stories with us, or is that classified, or what was one of your most memorable missions? So, you know, there, there are... Uh so many different emotions that you get to experience in this community, right? So uh, probably the most memorable one for me from the perspective of something that is really rewarding and you feel accomplished, self-fulfilled. Every time that we've rescued a a child, uh, whether it's an Afghan child or an Iraqi child that is injured and and you play a, a role in helping that child survive, get back to their family, that's incredibly rewarding. That's something that you're not going to find pretty much anywhere else, right? Uh, but then there's there's the, the other side of that story is uh, when we go out and, and try to do a rescue, but it turns into a recovery of human remains, right? And then that stays with you as well. So there's just this wide range of the types of missions that folks do out there. You know, some of the most memorable ones in terms of just watching my, my airmen do the impossible, we had this one quadruple amputee Marine in Afghanistan. He was part of an operation in Kajaki Dam, uh, we were trying to secure the area. This was back in 2011. And this individual would have died. And under any other circumstance in a conflict, this Marine would have died. But because of the incredible training that our pararescuemen have, they were able to do blood transfusions in the aircraft. They were able to stop the bleeding and then get them to a higher level of care. And this individual survived, right? That Marine survived because of the work they did. So that's incredibly rewarding when you think that you can play a role in a mission like that. Over the course of your career, I mean, I'm looking at the 38th, the 58th, the 57th, now the 563rd. How many missions did you fly? So I, you know, I don't keep an exact number myself, but I'll tell you that uh, when we were flying in Afghanistan uh, under the call sign Pedro, which is a legacy call sign that we uh, we also used in Vietnam, uh, it was not unusual for us to have eight missions a day. Right? That's unfortunately with the, the same crew. With the same crew, right? So we would pull typically a 12-hour shift, and we would have two crews because we were on 24-hour alert all the time. And it was not unusual for us to get eight calls per shift, right? So that that's the amount of, 
unfortunate loss of life and casualties and wounded uh, service members that we saw out there in Afghanistan. So in a 120-day deployment with that kind of ops tempo, it's literally hundreds of missions that most of our airmen, rescue airmen that served during that time got to be involved in. And that's a perfect transition, sir. Let's talk about the deployments because if I'm not mistaken, the and this is something, again, I, I want the civilians out there to understand. Just because we're not in Afghanistan anymore, uh, just because we've drawn down in Iraq, your community, the pace of your deployment has not gone down. I mean, you're still being sent to places that you don't talk about that are not, are not in the news, but you need to be in position just in case to, to perform your, your duties. So when we talk about separation during the holidays, this has got to be a, a, a huge issue for your community. Yes, 100%. So, you know, as an example, you know, right now we have two of our squadrons that are out the door. They're deployed down range, you know, doing their job. And back here we have, uh, you know, dozens of families that, mm-hmm. that are here without their their uh, military member for 180 days or more. And uh, it's important for us to, to understand that, but it's also important for us to be there and provide that support network to those families because the, the I can tell you from personal experience, one of the best things in the world is when you know that something's going wrong back, back home with your family, your children, but you can rely on one of your squadron mates, one of your teammates to go out there and help your family, right? Whether it's something simple like, hey, somebody needs to go cut, cut the grass or, hey, somebody needs to go help them set up the lights in their house, uh, their Christmas lights. Like those types of things make a huge difference, right? Because it's all the, 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 the military is a family, as you know. Mm-hmm. What can you, I mean, again, looking at your, your bio, uh, I'm guessing quite a few deployments. How many special occasions, birthdays, anniversaries, first this, first that, holidays, have you missed in your 20-plus years? I mean, could you estimate? It's a little bit of a running joke in my my family. So my youngest daughter, who's now 15, she's a, a sophomore at Catalina Foothills High School. Uh, she Every time that uh, her birthday comes around, you know, her joke is, are you, are you not going to be here again? Because <laughs> I've basically missed almost every one of her birthdays. Uh, and that's that's common, right, across uh, all the services. It's just part of the sacrifice that our service service members make. But at the same time, we 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 as as service members can also make it up to our families, right? Get back, spend that quality time with them, right? So it's not always a one way transaction. Colonel, when we come back, I want to talk about some specific things I found when doing research and and talk about uh, families separated during the holidays. Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you out there are struggling. Uh, during this holiday season, don't forget you can dial 988 on your cell phone, press 1, and that'll get you directly to the Veterans Crisis Line. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central studios where they make silence simple. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if owning a silencer is legally in your state and then work with the experts to make sure they match you with the right suppressor and ship it right to your front door. That's silencercentral.com. We're talking with Colonel Jose Cabrera. He is the commander of the 563rd Rescue Group. They're headquartered out of Davis Mountain Air Force Base. I'm lucky to say right in my the backyard of our flagship station here in Tucson, Arizona. And Colonel, as I was doing the show prep for this show, there was a uh, I came across a Reddit thread, and there was a young man asking for advice. He said he wanted to, to become a PJ. He wanted to go into pararescue, and 
what sorts of things should he do to prepare? And it's pretty clear from the thread he originally was focused on the, the physical aspects. And then you could see some older wires or voices chiming in saying, you know, that's not all you have to think about. You need to think about the pace of deployment and how are you going to handle that when you get married and, and, you know, what. And it was really, it really was sobering. You could see in the thread this, this young person was really thinking about maybe that wasn't the life for him. And it's been my experience in life. Sometimes the smartest thing you can learn is what you don't want to do in addition to what you do want to do. When it comes to separations in your community, I assume there are some support systems available, but oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, sir. So is this more difficult for someone like you like you, where you've got more than 20 years in, you've been there, done that, you know, got the T-shirt. I assume you've got your internal systems, your family systems worked out pretty well. Would you say it's more of a burden on the younger airmen for this, you know, this may be their first deployment and they just got married or they just had a baby and this is going to be their first holiday apart. Absolutely. So the first deployment is probably the toughest deployment for, for a young family. The first time that, that you get to say goodbye to your one or two year old, the first time that you get to say goodbye to your spouse, right? And, and you're going away for for that extended period. That's a very challenging thing, right? Uh, you do get used to it over time, but it's, it's never easy. So I, I would say that the first experience with being away from family is when we need to really rally around the families that are left back home. That's when we spend most of our time making sure that they understand what resources they have with the community, right? The installation itself, right? In our case, Davis Month, and, and, and that's common across all Air Force bases. There's a lot of resources available, but we do focus a lot on those first deployments, even though, like I said, every single one of them is difficult. I, we just recently had a, a representative of the Green Beret Foundation on, uh, Colonel, and she was talking about how some of the surprising facts about Green Berets that people wouldn't think about, you know, very often we imagine them as a you know, kind of young, run, climb, jump out of plane, you know, type folks. But but just given the nature of where you have to be in your Army career before you even qualify to become a Green Beret, she says a lot of these are, you know, they're, they're later in life. They've, they've started a family, and that's why her their support mission is so important. Is it similar with the PJs? I mean, do you have, do you have to be relatively well into your Air Force career before you join the community, or is it maybe a little bit different? Because I've seen some pretty young faces out there around the hangar. No, it's a little different for us. So we do take uh, brand new sessions. The majority of our, our new pararescuemen actually are new to the service, right? They come into uh, basic training, and they start uh, immediately after basic training their two-year pipeline. Then they show up to their first operational unit, right? And this is the first time that they encounter these situations and, and, and having to deal with being away from their family. Over time, what I found is that more and more of those young airmen are coming in already with a family, right? So that was unusual when I was younger, right? Most of our new PJs were, were mostly single. But now I see that a lot of them are married. They already have children. So I think that that's changed over time. And now that makes our support mission equally important, right? And we do have foundations similar to the Green Beret Foundation. There's a pararescue foundation as well that plays a significant role in supporting our families. Is there a disclaimer or a warning label that someone can slap on a new spouse and say, hey, just be aware this is what you're getting yourself into? Yeah. So, so I mean, a lot of that comes uh, just from being part of a squadron, right? So the the other spouses in, in the squadron uh, take you in and they let you know, hey, here's what you can experience. Because it's not just the deployments. It's also the amount of TDYs. When you have that diverse of a skill set, when you need to go exercise 
around the world, really, to be ready to do your job, it means that you spend a lot of time away from home, right? So whether it's our 130s or 60 or pararescue air crews and families, uh, that family support piece, I will tell you, is probably one of the most critical things that we do as commanders is to make sure that that safety net is in place. I, I do have to share, and I think this is the reason my wife appreciates your community so much, is I've, I get to spend a lot of time with a lot of members of the military, and I will say that, that the pararescue community among just one or two others I've had the opportunity to experience, once you pass muster, once you're let into the tribe, if you will, it is a very special, a very warm, a very supportive community, even with, you know, civilian knuckleheads like me. I mean, you can feel <laughs> that in, in the organization. So I think that that's a strength you've already got going for you. What are the some of the things that I'm, I'm worried about the impacts? And, you know, we have civilians, but we've also got other military families out there that listen to our show across the country, Colonel. What are some of the ways that this may manifest itself? Is it, I assume there's there's depression, maybe anger involved. People want to withdraw from their family during this because they're separated. What are some of the things that you've seen and, and other family members out there should look out for? Well, you know, if you talk to any military spouse, it seems like the moment you deploy was is when everything goes wrong in your house, right? Mm. That's when all the children get sick. That's when, you know, things start breaking around the house. So it, it just never fails. Um, the spouses are left with uh, all the issues when you disappear for a few months. Um, so so that that's always a, a factor, right? Uh, the other thing, too, that, that I think is very common is it's not necessarily when you're gone, but when you return. When you return, it's very difficult for families to get back to the swing of things because they're just different, right? Um, you go away for six or seven months, and uh, your children are six or seven months older, right? And that's a big difference, right, Be, in, especially – in, in younger children, right? So now you, they have to get used to their, their parent being away, and now they're going to have to get used to their parent being back home, right? So that that's a big part of the reintegration uh, phase that happens after a deployment. And then, uh, unfortunately, you know, the, with all service member uh, members, the more and more you spend time away and the more you get exposed to, you know, the reality of war, um, then there's challenges that come along with that, a lot, a lot of mental health issues as as we're all familiar with um whether it you know and then they those manifest in many different ways right just like like any other mental health uh, uh concern in society uh but in the service i think we're lucky from the sense that we understand that we try to identify it as early as possible so we can get you the help and the resources you need to get through it you know i, I talk about just the gratitude that i feel for you and your community and other members of the military and first responders so that I don't have to, I mean, the holidays are stressful enough for a civilian. I can't imagine, you know, trying to juggle all this with being separated from from your spouse or a key family member. Is there ever any feelings or have you heard of feelings of guilt amongst the service members themselves where they, they knew they signed up for this, they knew they volunteered for this, but they're someplace obscure, like Djibouti, um, <laughs> and, and they... They're thinking about their family at home, and and do they? Uh, does well? Let me ask you a simple question: Does a chaplain deploy with the squadrons? Yeah, so pretty much everywhere I've ever been deployed, there's a chaplain, right? Uh, we now have the benefit of having chaplains embedded in rescue units, so when we go downrange, there's an opportunity to continue to interact with them, uh, and you build that rapport before you go and deploy. Um, but yes, a hundred percent, right? Uh, when you when your spouse is dealing with these 
issues and you're not around to help, that there is a feeling of guilty that comes along with that. Um, but then again, you know, you're quick to activate your network of friends and, and, and folks that are supporting you back home to get your spouse that help, right? So that's how you turn that around. Because, um, as you know, we we're, we have a, a bias for action, right? So mm-hmm. while we may be feeling bad that we're not there to help, we're also going to be quick to, to find that help and make sure that our families are taken care of. Hopefully, hopefully. Because, 100%. again, in your community, a lot of type A personalities, and I don't want anyone to think, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I can get through this. I, when, when you could use some help, definitely reach out. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Colonel Jose Cabrera about separations during the holidays. Listen, if you're struggling or know someone who is, please, please dial 988, press 1. That is the, uh, they'll put you directly in touch with the uh, Veterans Crisis Line and you can get some help. Don't forget this podcast and over 500 others can be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking about the separations that military families experience during the holidays. Seemed like a timely discussion. We're very fortunate to be joined by an expert. Uh, Colonel Jose Cabrera is the commander of the 563rd Rescue Group. The pararescue forces have got one of the highest deployment tempos in all of the military. And, uh, Colonel, again, doing the show prep, I was kind of doing some research, so I know you didn't think there'd be a quiz, but (laughs) there is. I've got some suggestions. You let me know what you think about them, because as we've got some of those families out there who are either separated now or preparing to have a a separation, some basic things, like you said, just making sure you've got your ducks in order, obviously, and husband and wife or spouses have had that discussion before the deployment, so they know where to go to and where to get the support. What about simple things, but like if you have children, I read a great, I thought it was a great suggestion is, you know, maybe pull out some of their favorite bedtime stories and read them and record those before you deploy so that they can you can leave that behind and they can listen to that while you're while you're overseas. That that is a perfect thing. We, I've done that uh myself uh in my family and and you know now you have the advantage of of FaceTime and Zoom calls and things of that nature where you can connect to your family daily. But there's always going to be a day when you can't call back, right? Whether it be because this, the mission dictates or because networks are down or whatever the case may be, right? And and you cannot call and having that recording back home so that your spouse can still play to uh, your kids, you know, that night that you're not able to call, I think is is a great experience uh, and something that's very valuable to do. One of the other cool suggestions I saw was someone recommended getting some custom dog tags made, one for each spouse, and then the, the spouse that is behind just wears those dog tags every day while the deployment is taking place. And then when they come back and there's that reunion, they remove the dog tags and, and, and trade them back. And I thought that's a a simple but a nice thing. I mean, you're wearing that every day. They're they're close to your heart every day for the adults. Something else that I've read that I, I would recommend, and I would guess that you suggest that too, is the importance of making sure that the spouse that's left behind or the family that's left behind don't sidle them, that don't retreat into a cave. And I think that, you know, during this time, it's a perfect chance for the family that's left behind to go out together and experience some things. You know, go to the local zoo or or maybe you know start up a, a habit of going hiking in the morning, or just explore and and do things out there where you're kind of getting your mind off the separation. Is that a strategy that you've seen 
happen on a regular basis as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that is a great strategy, right? So when if you think about how most families work, right, you spend a lot of time together, right, whether it's talking about your children, uh, talking about your finances, and, and just doing the things that, that families do. And now you, you separate that family, and that uh, connection is not there on a routine basis throughout the day. So you got to get out. you got to get out and socialize with other people. That's why I think it's re- really important for the community and installations to provide venues and provide opportunities for deployed families to get out, right? Whether it's a, a deployed family dinner or, you know, passes to to the zoo or any activity like that that gets them out, gets them socializing and uh, keeps them, to be honest, you know, uh, a little busy uh, so they're not thinking about being apart from their loved ones. Sure. Distraction can be your friend sometimes, particularly when it comes to younger children. Now, yes, I guess. sir. T- traditions, all of us have got our, tra- you know, whatever your beliefs Almost all of us have regular traditions that we celebrate in our family around the holidays. I could see where a, a deployment could maybe interrupt those traditions, but it's also an opportunity to start some new traditions maybe. And and I would guess it's really important to get the kids involved too. What do you guys want to do this holiday? You know, I know mommy's not here or daddy's not here, but what would you all like to do during this holiday? And that uh, Do you guys have any special, I mean, other than your daughter saying, okay, dad, <laughs> dad's going to miss another one? Uh, yeah, so we, over the years, you know, in, in multiple deployments, my wife has developed, you know, her toolkit, and she's got a series of different things that she tries, you know, when I'm not around. And, and most of those involve the children, of course, and, and getting them uh, out there and engaged. So, yeah, th- those are all great things, right? And then there are some, some traditions that kind of come along with the service itself, right? So you got the opportunity to c- come out and see our children's Christmas party. Uh, that's something that we do every year. And it's a rescue holiday party, so we fly in Santa on a helicopter, and uh, Santa comes and sits in the back of a C-130, and all the children come and and get an opportunity to hang out with other kids and see Santa and get some toys and and do some crafts. And that has become a tradition, right, Uh, something that we do and our deployed families take advantage of. One of the best suggestions I ever heard as far as the deploying member, particularly in your line of work where they may not, you know, they might be again in in some remote locations is gifting them a solar phone charger. And it's stuff like that, you know, never crossed my mind. I can plug in my car, I can plug in the office, wherever I am. But if I'm out in the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, and I I, want to have that that phone to be able to do FaceTime when I can or something like that if I can get a signal. But being able to charge with the sun, I mean, heck, you can do that almost anywhere. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one either, but that sounds like a a great solution as well. Yay, I came up with something you hadn't heard of. Um, listen, I want to come back to, again, the support systems. I guess because the Green Brave Foundation was just recently on, they've got a, a support group called the Steel Mags, and they're mothers, daughters, and spouses of, of um, Army Special Forces. Is there a formalized infrastructure, or is it more of an informal in- infrastructure amongst the squad, uh, the, the spouses at the squadron level? And one of the challenges I see, sir, is that by the nature of your work, just when I kind of sort of get to know someone, two years go by and they're gone, and I've got to start with the next the next person. Is there a memory, or is there someone within the squadrons, a civilian somewhere, or somebody that helps keep that tradition going forward and, and is willing to or able to brief, for lack of a better term, these families before a deployment takes place? Yeah, so we have some some great programs that are organic to all of our Air Force installations, right? And there are some civilians that do provide that continuity, some government civilians that run those deployed family programs, right, at the uh, Family and Readiness Center. That's a great mm-hmm. example of where we have 
uh, a cadre of, of experts that understand these issues and, and provide that support to our families. But we also have structures within our operational squadrons, you know, including blue suitors or air, airmen that, that are part of that uh, support mechanism. So, of course, our first sergeants play a significant role in that. A key spouse program in the Air Force is very critical because it does provide that support network on behalf of a squadron commander to all the spouses in the squadron. And then there are some external organizations within our community, as an example, that play a significant role. So we have two uh, foundations or nonprofits that uh, dedicate uh, a lot of support to our families and our members. You have the the Others May Live Foundation, and you have the Pararescue Foundation. So both of those organizations uh, do a great job of supporting us uh, throughout the year, and then obviously when there's a time of need, uh, we often call them to help us out. Does PTSD play into this? And like I said, holidays are stressful anyway, but if, if you're experiencing PTSD or you've got some other issues going on, is this a particularly stressful time as well? Oh, yeah, 100%. We, uh, we are unfortunately one of the communities in the Air Force that does have a high rate of PTSD just by nature of the types of um, environments that we operate in and the types of missions that we get exposed to and, and um tragic loss is, is common, right? We, we lose our fellow airmen. We see a lot of loss in the battlefield. Uh, so PTSD is, is a significant issue for us. Um, it is an issue uh, during the holidays. As you know, holidays are a great time and also a difficult time for service members. They're a great time uh, to celebrate and be with our families, uh, but they're also a difficult time because it's probably one of the times throughout the year where you can feel isolated because you're not there with your loved ones and you're somewhere else or maybe um, you, uh, you know, we have high rates of divorce in our community, right? Maybe you're recently divorced and you're going through that. So there's a lot of reasons why the holidays can be a difficult time and we do need to provide all the resources we can to our airmen to uh, um, work through that if that's an issue. You know, I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't have a little quick public service announcement. We've, we've only got about one minute left, Colonel, but I just, when you're talking about traditions and separation during the holidays and all the social media out there that's available, uh, you know, keep operational security in mind when you're doing this. Don't say, oh, I miss my spouse because they're in, you know, XYZ location for six months. Uh, maybe not the best thing to put out there on Facebook or whatever you kids nowadays use. Yes. Fair enough. So just about a minute left. What? Just a summation, if you would, sir. I mean, your role is the commander. You're responsible for 700 or so airmen, as I get that correct. Uh, 600, just 600. over 600. Uh, as the the leader of that group, what is at the end of the day the the buck stops with you, and and where do you see your role in in making sure your families are taken care of during deployments? My role is very simple: is to support them. Right, they're the ones that are out there doing the job day in and day out. Um, I am no longer in that capacity. I, you know, most, as much as I want to be out there, really my role is to uh, let them go do the job and give them the tools they need to do the job. And that big part of that is supporting their families. I would say probably the most important part of my job is supporting their families. Do they let you, ever let you back in an aircraft for screams and giggles? They do, but it's just for fun. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Colonel, thank you so much, and, and blessings to you and your family and your airmen during this holiday season. Thank you, Ben, and thanks for having me. My pleasure. There you go, folks. Another great show on the can. Please, please share these important messages, particularly with folks that need to hear them. Over 500 podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com and your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.